This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We've been keeping this guest under wraps for a while now, but we're finally so excited to announce this powerhouse of a woman. We'd love to welcome and announce Lana Hopkins to the show today. Ladies, I'm sure we all know how hard it is to find the perfect handbag. Some are too big, others too small. None quite right. For Lana Hopkins, it was this very search that was the call to arms. It was time to take her future and her accessories into her own hands. After taking a cue from Build-A-Bear, Lana decided to create an innovative platform allowing women to customise their own handbags. And we are so glad that she did. Enter Monpurse, the global accessory brand that allows women everywhere to design their perfect handbag and treasured accessory to last. Under Lana's leadership, Monpurse has globally excelled, earning a spot in the halls of Fashion Goliaths, Selfridges and Bloomingdale's. Cue the high fives. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking to Lana about the lessons she learnt while navigating her business in a traditionally male-dominated environment. If it's courage that you're searching for, look no further and take a listen. Lana, welcome to the Peers Project. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It is such a pleasure to be here, Michelle. Thank you for having me. It's an honour. Oh, means so much. You know, look, you and I connected over LinkedIn and very recently, actually, when I saw your transition into, you know, a new venture for 2019 and... You know, when you you and I dove into a bit of conversation around this and around, you know, your strong desire to give back to the ecosystem and to support aspiring female founders, I was super fascinated and I knew I had to have you come on the show. Um, So I really appreciate you being here today. Oh, thank you so much for including me. It's an absolute pleasure. And I feel that we generally do have that duty to give back. Um, I was incredibly fortunate in terms of the number of people who really offer their time, their support, their advice and their assistance when I needed it most throughout my entire journey at Monpurse um, and now. And I feel like if we all bond together and get together, we really can do so much for our ecosystem. I love that. Oh, I'm so excited for this conversation. Great. So, you know, before we dive into you and your work, I want to start with the question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, what did your parents do? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and your career so far? So, uh, great question. I was actually born in the Soviet Union in Russia, 
Um, and my parents had very interesting and exciting careers. And I think that that really has shaped who I am today. Um, my mother was the economic advisor to the former leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, wow. And my father is actually a scientist. He's a geneticist, to be exact. Um, and so they're both academics um, and really, really passionate about their respective fields, being economics and uh, science, genetics specifically. Um, they have both instilled this incredible ambition in me and my brother from a very young age. And even though I didn't exactly venture down the academic route, I think that I took away a lot of the discipline and grit and passion and determination and having that purpose in life. Because if you believe in what you're doing, if you're passionate in what, passionate in what you're about, then obviously it's going to be so much more fulfilling to get through life and to create something that's both exciting and meaningful. And not just for yourself, but for those around you as well. Mm. I love that. And I, I asked that question because most of the time it is a reflection. What your parents do is a reflection of kind of where you decided to take your career and where you started out. And I love that it was that it was that flare of passion and doing what you care most about, which is everything that we're about here at the Peers Project. So I love that. Okay, so I want to dive a little bit deeper into Lana the early years. So, you know, you, you came to Sydney and you obviously your family moved here and, you know, you studied at the University of Technology in Sydney and you did a Bachelor of Business. Now, at that time then, when you were at university, still navigating this world, were you, did you, did you know you wanted to start a company of your own? You know, did you know that you had that entrepreneurial spirit within you and that you wanted to do something different? So I think I was always a little bit of a rebel at heart. <laughs> we love <laughs> and that. this really goes back to, back to my early days, you know. I never specifically sat down and thought I'd like to be an entrepreneur, I'd like to start a business. But I think I found myself quite often debating with my teachers, debating with my lecturers, trying to understand why, you know, the weekend was a Saturday and a Sunday, not a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, always trying to, I guess, uh, challenge the status quo. Um, and not for the purpose of being disruptive, but genuinely I wanted to understand why things were the way they were and could they be better? Could they be improved? Was there an opportunity to create something that was a bit more meaningful? Um, obviously I wasn't successful in creating a weekend of three days, but um, hey, there's time. Um, there is. <laughs> but I guess, you know, to address your original question, no, you know, it was quite interesting. When I was finishing high school, um, I just spent my year 11 basically on the National Youth Roundtable. And so the federal government, I don't remember if, don't know if you remember, but I had a program where 20 people between the ages of 15 and 30 would get selected every year to assist the federal government in really understanding youth issues. And a could be about, you know, the state of the arts, economics, politics, etc., um, and kind of giving their contribution in terms of what we think the future generation is looking for. So having come, having come out of that, I think I realised pretty quickly that politics wasn't where I was going to go. Um, and then I sort of sat around for a long time thinking, well, what is it that I want to do? And you have to say to those people who are listening, especially if they're graduating from high school or going into university, and Michelle, I don't know if you relate, but you just don't know. Don't know. How are you expected to know at 17 what you want to do for the rest of your life? Mm. It's a really, really big ask. Mm. Um, and I looked at so many things. I was fascinated with journalism. I wanted to join the United Nations and make the world a better place. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there were just Love this. so many different things that I wanted to do. 
Absolutely. Um, and I think really what it came down to is I thought I'd get a business degree because it would give me a round understanding of a multitude of different areas and faculties. Mm. I love that. And I that's something we talk a lot about here at the Pierce Project, that idea of navigating and then actually making that decision around, I think this is what I want to do. I think this is what I'm interested in. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you won't know until you try, right? And exactly. I think and I think it's so cool that you kind of did your research a little bit and really and you, you kind of thought business, all encompassing, we'll see what happens. Exactly. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so see what happened, uh, you know, see what happens is what actually happened with you. So, you know, when you headed out of university, you actually went straight into a career in, in at Unilever, um, only for a year there. But talk to us a little bit about that pivotal decision around what exact career you want to get into and then the shift you made from Unilever into media. So, um, fascinating question, but... I actually uh, got into Unilever before I graduated from university. Ah. Um, and I think for me, again, it comes back to the point of what's going to give you the most broad and diverse experience? And for me, it was a case of going into a graduate type of role. Um, and that's what Unilever had at the time. And so it was really, it gave me the opportunity to kind of look at the sales department, the marketing department, mm. operations, uh, technology, finance, and spend a couple of months with each division. Um, but my biggest sort of um, exercise whilst I was there was being a sales manager. Mm. And I literally got a little rav for a cute little burgundy car <laughs> to drive around the northern beaches of Sydney selling ice cream to, (gasps) yes, literally selling ice cream. So it was one long hot summer and I think I would have had to, you know, uh, run for three hours a day to work on the ice cream, which I literally had in the boot of my car. Wow. But it was the most incredible experience because I think it kind of gave me perspective of, A, how a multinational FMCG business operates, where they They've got direction from global head offices, but then how do they run their Australian business? And then within that, how are the different departments integrated and how do they sit together? Um, I think after that, pretty quickly, I realised, hey, hang on, I've been studying, (laughs) I've been working, I've been doing the National Youth Roundtable, it's time to travel. Mm -hmm. And so off I went to Europe, which was one of the best, best opportunities you'll ever get. I've always said that as much as you learn on the job, it's actually through travelling and meeting people and getting immersed in different cultures that you learn more, not just about them, not just about those cultures, but yourself. I could not agree more. And, you know, it's part of the reason why we interview across the world here, because we want those diverse perspectives to understand, you know, how what they've what they've gotten out of growing up in a different city or experiencing travel and whatnot. And I love that you said that. So talk to us a bit about that, the biggest learning that you had heading overseas and traveling. Absolutely. I think that, you know, you have to adapt to different languages and particularly if you can't speak a certain language. Um, I spent a bit, a bunch of time in, in France, in Poland. Um, I don't speak either French or Polish, but you adapt and you really learn about the customs and the cultures of those countries. What sets people off? What makes them happy? How do you really get the most out of people? Because at the end of the day, I think that whatever you're doing in life, whether you're running a business or running a family or working for yourself or whatever it is, you do need to understand the human psychology. And by really nailing that, you will be successful in whatever you do. I love it. Oh, this is such great conversation. Okay, so you're in Europe, you know, you've graduated, you're like, I'm going to go out there and and see what the world is all about. Yes. What 
So did you start your career in media in Europe? Talk to us a bit about how you navigated into media. So, look, when I came back from Europe, ah. um, that was after about a year of traveling, wow. I then decided that, you know, I've always have been passionate about the media industry. I did initially want to study journalism. That was one of the things that I was considering prior to leaving high school. Um, I've always been an English major. I've been passionate about modern history, writing, drama, all the things of the heart, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> and so I thought, well, you know, there really is something about the media world. You know, there's so much of an opportunity to kind of understand what are the key conversations that are happening in the world right now, whether it's in fashion and beauty and food or generally in, in the news world. Um, so I actually went over to News Limited where I started off on the masthead, The Australian, um, working across uh, special reports at The Australian in Holt Street, which then later led me into the magazine world um, in food publishing across titles like Delicious, Donahue and MasterChef. So... Super cool. Really good experience. Super, Super cool. Good. Yes. Super grounding. Yes. And I think that what's fascinating here is that there was such a shift from before you went overseas to after. You know, did you feel like that time abroad, that one year, you know, did you feel like that kind of allowed you to gain a better sense of self and understanding around what you wanted to do? Um, and if so, you know, how did you gain that first opportunity in the media world? Look, I think, great question. Um, to be honest with you, I think I was still trying to navigate it and work it out. Mm. You've got to remember that I'm in my early 20s at this stage. And again, you know, for anybody listening, it's take that pressure off yourself. You're not going to have your high moments um, straight away. Sometimes you kind of have to connect the dots um, and bundle up all the experiences that you've acquired over the last two, three, four, five years before you can create something that's meaningful, if that's what you're thinking. And, you know, the world that we live in, um, there's a lot of expectation to be a 23-year-old billionaire. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and A, that's not for everyone. No. But secondly, don't pressure yourself to have a light bulb moment just for the sake of it. Um, there's a lot of sensationalization in the media in terms of what people are doing and how quickly they're getting there. But there's no right path. Um, now, to the second part of your question, how did I get that opportunity? I really think it was about pounding the pavement and literally not giving up, making sure that I had interviews lined up, I was talking to the right people, and I was really, really putting my hand up saying, I want this experience, this is what I can do for you. Um, funny enough, uh, if we go back to when I was 16, I actually did work experience at Dolly Magazine, um, oh, and that was unpaid, and uh, I think uh, Miranda Kerr may have had something to do with that. Oh. <laughs> you know, of course. Of course you know. she did. <laughs> She's the centre of all of that, all Literally. of that amazingness. Yeah. And, you know, I was growing up in country New South Wales in Armidale. She was a girl from Dub. I think was it Dubbo or Orange? Oh, it's something like um, that. Mudgy, maybe? Yeah, Mudgy. And mm. I was really, really inspired by this gorgeous young girl and uh, gracing the covers of my favourite teen magazine. Mm. Um, and it kind of just led me to kind of go, okay, I'm going to go and do this work experience. So I guess one of the biggest things that you really can do is get the work experience, make those contacts, network, network, network. Um, because you never know who's going to help you out and when. I love that. And uh, like just to hammer that point home, the reason why you and I are sitting here today is because of precisely that, the reaching out, the networking, you know, only a week or so ago and look at, you know, where we are right now, mm -hmm. having this brilliant conversation. I think it's, that is, yeah, I think you've nailed it with that. That is number one, I think, when you're going out there trying to figure out, you know, what's next for you. It's just about 
talking to the right people and putting yourself out there and really doing that networking. I love it. Okay, great. So I'm and, kind of, you know, yeah. don't be afraid of rejection because I think uh, what's the worst that can happen? Somebody will say no, which means exactly. that it wasn't meant to be. That's it. And I think it's taking it all as a sign. That, that's not the right one for me. What else can we do? I love it. So, look, I want to dive a bit into Monpurse. So, you know, obviously you've spoken about this many, many times with many different, you know, media companies and whatnot. But, you know, I, and we know about, you know, your beginning, your, your, your phenomenal progression, which is, is just so great to see over those years. But for the benefit of all of our peers out there listening who don't know your story, I want to dive a little bit into the early years of Monpurse. So, Firstly, tell us a little bit about, you know, how did the idea come about and, you know, how did you know you had to go out there and pursue it? So I think, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, Michelle, um, I'd be surprised if you didn't, but a lot of great stories start with a problem. Um, and I was that girl with that problem. I was literally shopping for the perfect handbag at my local Westfield in Bondi. And unfortunately, I just couldn't find it. Um, you know, there wasn't anything that I loved. And whatever I liked a little bit, I couldn't actually customise it to give it that personal feeling. And that's not just about putting a monogram. It's about getting the right colour hardware, the right lining, the right size to make it really mine, you know? Um, and the other thing was really quality. And that's why... I I guess it led me to go to Europe and to find the highest and the best quality leather that I possibly could to kind of say, if you're going to customise something for yourself, you're probably going to keep that for a while and you want the quality to be there. You want the leather to smell really, really beautifully. Um, and so for me, given that I had a problem and I couldn't find that perfect handbag, um, I had a little nephew at the time. I still have that nephew, but he's not so little anymore. <laughs> they grow up quick. <laughs> they grow up quick. Um, and and so I sort of gave up and abandoned my initial search for a handbag and I walked into the Build-A-Bear workshop, also in Bondi, um, and I spent an hour, an hour that I possibly could not have had, I was very busy at the time, building a teddy bear. And I, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let, me, let me go back. I was immersed in building a teddy bear. I was literally building his heart, his head, his eyes. This beautiful little creature just came to life. And I sat in my car and that's when I had what you call the aha moment. And I thought, if I could be that captivated in the process of building a bear, how would my girlfriends feel if they could build the perfect handbag. And it really was just as simple as that. The rest was a lot more complicated. <laughs> that was pretty simple. I think there was dividing was on the wall. It was saying, do this, create this. I love that. And I want to dive into, you know, the decision to actually go out and create. Because I think so many of us you know, we go about our daily lives and we have these aha moments. We go, oh, gosh, I wish there was that that I could do. Or, you know, there's that idea which, you know, so has to be out there in the world. But it's the execution, it's the creation phase that we kind of stumble on. So talk to us a bit about those early challenges um, that you went into creating Monpers. Look, and I think you're 100% right, you can never underestimate the early challenges. What I say to anybody who asks this question, be it a mentee, a peer, a friend, whatever, doesn't it make it a lot easier when you break things up into small tasks? So rather than saying, this is utopia, this is what the ideal world looks like, how do I uh, break it up into uh, bite-sized um, pieces? And how do I say, okay, today we're going to accomplish this, tomorrow we're going to do that, and we're going to test and validate everything. So it's really about thinking about this in sort of agile sprints and applying that to your entire business philosophy and methodology, testing it and creating that feedback loop where you've got your tribe, 
which is really your consumers, but I prefer to call them your tribe, they come back and they give you feedback consistently. So a good example of that was at the beginning of Montpellier. So I went to Europe, went to Turkey, um, secured a factory that was willing to work with us um, against all odds um, and came back to Australia. And my next thing was really to build a site that would kind of provide people a platform to design their perfect handbag. Now, I could have done it in two ways, one of two ways. One is locked myself away for a year with the team and built this thing and then they will come. So build it, they will come. Or the second philosophy, which is build an MVP, which is not going to be perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And what that meant for me, and I chose option two, was literally to utilise the contacts that I had within uh, various publishing houses. So I went to friends at Mamma Mia, I went to News Corp, I went to Southern Cross Stereo, a bunch of random, random... Uh, and interesting uh, publishing houses and I sort of said to them and media providers and I said to them gather your most critical women who understand fashion who get fashion because I knew they were going to be my early adopters and I needed to understand what they wanted and what they didn't want and let's get them in a room I literally had all the bags laid out the leathers the hardware and A4 sheets of paper which my husband had put together he drew the most beautiful little handbags, oh. which had links and arrows saying, you can customise this handle or the front of the bag, the back, the inside, whatever it might be. Um, and then, you know, get their feedback because that feedback was going to be an invaluable piece of the UX for our product, for our tech product. But, Michelle, what ended up happening is that much to me being incredibly unprepared for this, people started buying bags on the spot. They started saying, how do we transact? I want this bag, I want this colour leather, this texture, this hardware, this lining. So within a month, I was literally so oversubscribed that I knew I had to raise capital and scale this thing in order to be able to build a team and get this off the ground. When you have momentum, you need to move because momentum is a sign from the world saying that your MVP is not only working, but you're getting traction. So you need to start moving at that point. Wow. There is so much to take in here. I love it. So I'm just going to dive dive into the point where you said there was a crossroads. You could have chosen to, you know, lock yourself in a room for a year, gotten a team and figured it out, or... Start testing. Yes. And I love how you said, you know, it was really that second decision to start testing. And, you know, as we can see now, it was the foundation of what was going to be Mom Person, the enormous growth you, ha- growth you had so quickly. So talk to us a bit about once you had gotten that testing phase, th- these women are in this room, you know, they're saying, I want to buy your bag right now. Where do you go from there? You know, how, how do you then go, we need to find investment, we need to get a team together. And, and also, how do you then go you know, we need to package this up to be able to sell to people, to be able to pitch to investors. Talk to us a bit about that process there. So there's a lot of uh, good questions. I'm going to break it up. Yes. So um, <laughs> Getting overly excited. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is good. We like that. Um, so, okay. So n- number one, obviously, uh, you have to think about everything and what am I going to do today, tomorrow, next week and next month. So you put a bit of a plan together. You say, this is my bigger vision. This is what I want the brand to look like in a year, six months, whatever it is. Yeah. So you put a business plan together and that's a combination of a financial model, but also the concepts. So what does your marketing plan look like? Um, What does the activation strategy look like? What does the retention strategy look like? 
How are we going to talk to people? But most importantly, before you start doing any of that, you work out the why. What is the purpose of this brand and how do we continue to give that over and over and over again? So that, I guess for me, Michelle, what it comes down to is in the age of the internet, um, in the world that you and I live in, distribution is not just about the channel that you tap into. It's about every single touch point. And, uh, you know, honing into that and making that true to what your brand's about. So it's packaging worth Instagramming. It's how you communicate with your tribe. It's how engaged you want your tribe to be in your brand, in your process, in your design process. So how do you socially engineer that in a way that allows them to feel like they have ownership, they have buy-in? And also every other single touch point, what is the culture of our team? Um, How do we communicate with our stakeholders and investors? So those sorts of things you need to be clear on before you actually start getting out, which is your question number two, getting out there and starting to do those things. Once you've defined those things, you need to build the minimum viable propositions for every single thing or minimum viable product for every single thing. So you work out what's going to generate revenue in the first six months, what's going to generate revenue in in the second six months, and how do you play to that? Um, What are the important expenditures that you need right now and what can wait? And so once you you have a model like that and once you have clarity, you can then obviously start to hopefully get out there, speak to investors. And again, the investment route is not for everybody. The vision that I had was to have a high growth business. If you're looking to build something a little bit more slowly and steadily, then you can very much do that by reinvesting um, your early sales revenue, your profits into ongoing development of the business, uh, the ongoing development of the business. Um, So it's really about working out what's important to you and why do you need that investment. Um, and then it's really about saying, what am I going to achieve today, tomorrow and the week after? Don't overcomplicate it and think that you need to do it all in one day. But what I will say is going back to my original point, start networking as early as you possibly can because even if you're not in the process of raising capital or in the process of building your team, you want to always have these people lined up and ready to go for when you do have your MVP validated. You don't want to start searching for them once you've done all the hard work. You want to engage people in the process all the way through, um, be it mentors, be it potential investors, be it the team. Get them excited so that they then want to be part of your journey as much as you do and they believe in you. Well, I think there's so much I'm learning here and I, I think there's so much that we're taking away from this conversation, which we so appreciate. Okay, so it really is about taking that one foot you know, in front of the other, having that overall plan and having that clarity around, great, how am I going to then execute on all of this? But whilst also knowing that we might as well start talking to people today, exactly. even if it's not perfect. Exactly. I love it. Okay, so, you know, Something I want to just quickly touch on before we we move on is this idea of your ambition and your confidence. So I think especially, you know, us women out there, most of the time we think, oh, you know, maybe we'll just go small. Maybe we'll just test it a little bit. And, you know, but you from the get go was like, oh, I'm just going to get investors. I'm going to make this the biggest thing I possibly can. And, you know, it definitely happened. You know, talk to us a bit about that you know, that courage that you have, that um, confidence that you have and how you developed it and how we can do the same. 
Look, Michelle, I have to say to you, I think you're a little bit too kind <laughs> and too generous. Um, I'm not sure that I necessarily had those things or thought that I had them. I think that I wanted to solve a problem. So it's going back to the original problem that I had. And if I had a problem, surely that was then validated by the women that I met in those boardrooms, in those media publishing houses, and they confirmed that, I had, that they had a problem. So it was a case of saying, I have a problem, they have a problem. How do we create a solution that is going to make that pain point go away for so many more people and at the same time create something that is memorable, magical and uh, wows people worldwide. So the moment that I knew the traction was there, that's when I knew it needed to become bigger. I don't think I ever sort of set out and thought, wow, like, you know, I'm going to make this, this and this. Mm. I think it was genuinely a case of making a problem go away. Um, and that's kind of how you tend to think about it. I genuinely think that you won't know how big your market size is or how big the opportunity is or what the product market fit looks like. Until you get that feedback, um, what I will say, though, is that feedback is something that has to be continuous. And one of the biggest things that you have to do, whether you're a technology company, a SaaS company, a direct-to-consumer brand, is you cannot get too arrogant or too confident once you've achieved scale. Um, and I think that your communication with your cohort or with your tribe needs to be genuine and it needs to be authentic. And I hate that those buzzwords are flying around all the time about authenticity, etc. But ultimately, there are people who have that purpose from day one and genuinely believe in it. And then there are those who use that for marketing opportunities. And I think it's a very, very big differentiator. And that really comes down to the team that you build and the people that you bring into your business and what they believe in. But more on that later. Yes. I love it. I, I think your authenticity, and just to bring that up, I mean, you just as a person, your authenticity, your level of just genuineness, you know, if that's even a word, is just so evident. And I think that's definitely definitely shown through through your brand um, and it's it really has I think scaled off that value which is just phenomenal to see so let's talk a little bit about that You're progression too kind. <laughs> it's it's just it, it really you don't see it every day I think that's that's the real point here but talk to us a little bit about the, that progression and then your recent decision to step down as CEO so you know all of a sudden it became this worldwide fascination and, you know, written about in almost every news town, media channel, you know, what was that experience like for you? Just kind of seeing your baby grow and seeing all this hard work that you've put in, it was actually paying off. Talk to us a little bit about that. Thank you. I think, you know, the biggest thing that you always have to remember is when you get that growth and when you get that traction, it's really the validation of the customer. Um, and it's exactly during that process that not only can't you forget about your customer, but you have to spend more and more time, energy and effort on them. Because if you don't hone into that, then I think uh, things will start to go backwards and you really need to believe in it. Um, I've always said to my team that it comes down to community first, revenue second. Um, and what that means is, that, you know, it's not about saying we don't want the fast growth. We certainly do. The people who adopt the philosophy that I just outlined have actually built some of the biggest businesses that we know about. And you look at companies like Allbirds, like Warby Parker, Apple, for example, it's always been centered around the central philosophy of community first. Um, and how do you really engage your community? How do you have that unbreakable bond with them where you are vulnerable, where you talk about the things you've done wrong, where you open up and expose how your vulnerabilities and how you can improve. But more importantly, you engage them in what they want. 
um, you become led by data because you can see what the data points are telling you. But more, most importantly, you become led by emotions. And that's the one thing that I think every successful business needs to have at, at its core. If you don't have an emotional proposition, how can you possibly connect with people? Um, and how can you possibly come across as a brand that cares? Now, a lot of the uh, direct-to-consumer brands, even when they scale up to be huge businesses, uh, what they do successfully is they keep that nimble and agile and certainly from a consumer perspective, really startup-y culture. Um, and people feel like they're really part of the tribe. They're connected to the brand. They're connected to the platform or the offering. Um, the minute that that goes away, you really become like the incumbents. Um, and certainly for the millennials like you and I, that's so super important to feel like we are part of this. We can see our own personality reflected in what this brand or this platform, etc., are really all about. I love that. There are so many takeaways here. And I think that idea of, you know, staying kind of agile and, you know, a startup-y and having that edge and feeling like allowing your customers to feel like they own the brand is such a good takeaway. And it's, it's something I think all of us have to think about. Where did you gain, you know, this wisdom is just phenomenal. Did you think like this to start off with or was it really a progression? Um, look, I think if I if I look at the early interviews that I've done, which are all in the public domain, and I look through my notes, I think the one thing that I've always said is it's customer centricity. Again, not the buzzwords, but the passion, the magic, the energy, that has to be there. We're going to make mistakes along the way. We're going to work on those mistakes. We're going to learn from them. But if you let that one thing go, I believe that the purpose of the brand has been defeated and it's no longer what I started out with. I love it. Okay, so to now to, you know, your recent decision to step down as CEO, I really want to get into this. So, look, it's been four years. You've grown into something phenomenal. It was your baby. You were the sole founder. You're the CEO. You had your board. You know, talk to us a little bit about what triggered your desire to step down. So, look, Michelle, wonderful question. But for the last sort of one and a half years, I tried to bring the business um, together in terms of making sure that everybody was aligned to the same vision, that we shared the same North Star and that our purpose and values were completely aligned. Um, that wasn't heading in the same direction that I had the vision for, for the business. Um, for me, really, I had one vision and certain stakeholders had another. And sometimes I think you've got to sort of look at your life, the bigger picture of your life, and to say, what is the opportunity cost? Am I better off to step aside and let them pursue it and take it in a different direction? Or should I stay, jump on board and go with that program? Um, and it really comes down down to your values. So we were incredibly lucky in terms of some of the high talent that we attracted, some of the most incredible investors and shareholders. Some of them I'm actually fortunate to call my friends. I'm close to them. Um, but what I probably would have done a little bit better, and this comes from experience, so, you know, I definitely know this next time around, is you have to do your due diligence on every single stakeholder that you bring into the business. Find out what motivates them. Find out what their North Star is. What is their end game? What is their modus operandi? What's their philosophy? What's their psychology? Um, and most importantly, what's their previous history? What have they done in the past? Speak to people who have worked with them or been in business with them and try to understand a little bit about that. I think what you touched on earlier was everything happened very, very quickly. Um, and some of those processes weren't as um, sharp as they should have been 
again from a day day perspective. So for anybody listening, do your due diligence meticulously um, because if you're not aligned with all of your stakeholders, it has the potential to take your business in a very different direction. Such a good takeaway. And I think it's something that when we're progressing so quickly and we're thinking about the vision, it can definitely get lost, you know, and I think it's something that we don't really think will be an issue until it becomes one. So huge takeaways here. Okay, I love this. Okay, so what motivated you to kind of go, I've shifted my passion almost. My passion now is in empowering the next generation of entrepreneurs, female founders, you know, and your desire to kind of start this new venture in 2019. Talk to us a little bit about that motivation shift there. So I started to, as I was going through the process for the last year and a half, I started to think about what's next. Um, And for me, it was really about two things. Wouldn't it be such a shame to have learned all of this, um, to be a female founder? And we we all know that only 2% of female founders in the US receive venture capital funding. I was one of the fortunate ones. Um, So I have a sense of duty to give back and to kind of also be honest with people about the lessons that I've learned. Don't think of them as mistakes. Think of them as lessons. Think about it as an opportunity to uh, develop and to grow. But for me, it was about do I focus on the next venture and take that away and be quite selfish in my um, sharing of information? Or do I potentially say, ha, I wish someone had given me that checklist at the beginning? Because guess what? I sure as hell would have done things very, very differently. So there's that commitment to helping our community. There's a real passion for the ecosystem, which is blooming. Um, It's huge in the US. It's huge in Europe. We're just starting to see the beginning of something that's really, really special. Um, And that warms my heart. Um, And so, yeah, so that's that. And then obviously to your second question, which is my new venture, I'm obviously packaging up all of these lessons that I've learned um, and proceeding with a lot more caution to ensure that um, whilst there will be trials and tribulations, there always are, it's about surrounding yourself with people who share the same values and who are aligned to you in every single way. Now, you may do things differently. You may have disagreements. You may have a different perception of how to get somewhere, but your North Star has to be the same and your values have to be completely aligned in terms of what's acceptable and what's not. So good. So good. And I'm so excited. Just the way you speak about values and alignment and finding your tribe and your people to help you build what you want to build. It's just so aligned to what we talk about here. And it's just something that I personally resonate really highly with. Um, So I'm we're so excited. I'm so excited to see and hear what is coming out next year and, you know, something that we can all engage in, hopefully, and I'm sure we all will. We all want to jump on board um, and the Lana tribe. And I just, I'm so excited and congratulations on all that you've achieved so far. I'm just so grateful. I'm really, really grateful for your support. <laughs> of course, of course. You know, as we come to the close of today's episode, you know, I want to appreciate, I want to just acknowledge you, Lana, um, for the phenomenal work you've done and that you're doing. You know, you really are a role model to all of us out there, you know, who are looking to to start something, who are looking to pursue our passion, who are trying to find our purpose. And you really just are a symbol of all of that. And we so appreciate you for it. So thank you. Thank you for having me. If there's anything I can do to help, just let me know. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So as we finish up, we'll come to the final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews here at The Peers Project. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? That's probably one of the most interesting, if not difficult questions that I've ever asked in my life, been asked in my life, Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) 
I like to make it difficult. Um, you've done that. You've really done that. Um, but I think it really comes down to look at it from the other side. Flip that question around. What does your life look like without that? So it comes back to the question that I answered earlier, which is opportunity cost. Life is opportunity cost. You've got to look at how many years you've got on this planet and how much time you have to make a dent in the universe. And my dent, your dent, the next person's dent might be completely different. Um, and whatever it is that you're striving to do, do that because time waits for no one. I love it. Thank you so much, Lana. We so appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of this movement. I love it. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Piers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Piers to Piers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>